Good morning. Let's, uh, let's, get, let's get started. Our gracious Father, we thank you so much for, uh, for the encouragement you give us in your word. Lord, we thank you for your Bible that speaks to us, that speaks truth. Lord, I pray this morning that we would have ears to hear, which you would have us to hear, and that uh, you would give our hearts an understanding of uh, this topic of your marvelous grace. So, Lord, I pray that your grace would come now upon this class, that your spirit would uh, fill me in a way that I would speak so that it is clear and, and, uh, and accurate to your word. I pray that your spirit would be with those that are listening to uh, work to uh, make my, uh, my words effective. Lord, I pray if there's any error in what I say that you would uh, not use that, but uh, you would work even through that. We thank you for this day. We ask your blessing on it in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome to the week where we will be studying Irresistible Grace in the adult elective series that we've called What's in a Calvinist? If a tulip by any other name would be a sweep in our class schedule. And we looked at, and you'll see that we are in week number six, and we are in the eye of the acronym TULIP. We all remember what the acronym TULIP stood for. It's, you will find it nowhere in the Bible as an acronym. It is a memory device that we use for helping us understand or to help us remember uh, God's plan of salvation and how it's working. Remember that we looked at scriptures or rule. We do not want to go against Scripture. If we can't find it in Scripture, we can't argue from Scripture, then uh, it is merely the words of men. But we believe that Scriptures are a rule, and that is our guide. Then we looked uh, the second week, we looked at the any blossom has a root and stem. And the root and stem of what we're talking about is that it's God's sovereignty, God's character. He does not change. God is free. God is full of mercy, right? God is sovereign. He is able to do what God, God wants, right? Our God sits in the heavens, and He does whatever pleases Him. That is the root and the stem, the foundation of what we're looking at. Then we came to the first uh, letter in the word tulip. We looked at the man's condition, where man finds himself after the fall of Adam. We see that we are totally depraved. It's not that we are all as evil as we can possibly be. We are not all Adolf Hitlers, right? But what we're saying is, is that Man comes up short of the glory of God. Man comes up short of the glory of God. And that's the standard. Right? Even as a believer, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, what? Do it all to the glory of God. Right? So the question is, how are we doing? Well, we're, we all come up short of that glory. So we are depraved and we need a God to save us. Because God saves. Yahweh saves. And we see that God in His freedom comes before the foundations of the world chooses to adopt for Himself a people. So we see that God unconditionally elects for Himself a people. We're saying His election, His choice of us is not conditioned upon anything in and of, of ourselves because there is nothing in us to cause God to choose us. It is out of His mercy and His electing love that He that he condescends to draw to himself a people. 
So he unconditionally elects the people. And we saw that week, last week that in that people he unconditionally elected in eternity past that he sent his son to come and to walk and to live a life that we cannot live, a sinless life. Right? And that Christ on the cross died and he atoned for, he redeemed, he purchased for himself a people. We say it is this people that God elected in eternity past. And we said that God's atonement, or we say that the atonement of Jesus Christ is limited. And maybe that is an unfortunate word. We said it is a particular atonement. We say that God's atonement, the death of Jesus Christ, is applied to a particular, to a definite group of people. That's what we're saying. We're saying that God saves. He does not make salvation merely possible, waiting upon man to respond, but he saves. And in his death, he pays the price for sin. And not only does he pay the price for sin, but he also purchases the grace and the faith required for us to believe. We saw that in the New, Cust- in the new Covenant, and where God says, I will come. In the, the Old Covenant, men couldn't keep. In the New Covenant, I will come. And I will give them a new heart. I will write my law upon their hearts. Right? I will give them, I will take that stone, that heart of stone out, and I will give them a heart of flesh, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. And so we see that in that new covenant, it is all God acting to draw to himself a people and to assure them that they come to salvation. So that's what we mean by limited, that it is limited to a group of people who God unconditionally chose for the foundations of the world because he had to unconditionally choose them because they were totally depraved and they could not seek after God. So we come to this morning to the I and the acronym TULIP, Irresistible Grace. Irresistible Grace. It is uh, an effective grace. We know that, uh, again, this whole study did not, was a, was a huge study or was a huge body of the teachings of the church through history. And when the remonstrance came and they had six arguments, six, six disagreements with the teachings of the church they presented to the Dutch Reformed Church at the time. And in the five points, what they said was, is God's grace is not unconditional. They said it is prevenient. It is preparatory work of the Holy Spirit that enables the believer to respond and cooperate with God in salvation. Now, out of his freedom of his own will, the Spirit comes, showers grace upon every person, and then the person may cooperate with God if he so chooses. This grace may be resisted or accepted. And what we're going to argue is, is that his grace is irresistible. Okay? And we're not talking about a grace that clubs you over the head and drags you kicking and screaming, but we're going to see that it is a, a grace that takes a dead man and makes him alive. The Westminster Shorter Catechism said it this way, the effectual calling or irresistible grace is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds and the knowledge of Christ, renewing our minds, He doth persuade and He enables to embrace Jesus Christ. That's what the Westminster Catechism said. Okay? But the important thing is, is it's an enabling. Okay? It's a persuading. It's an enlightening of our minds and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so then we're still left with, well, what's the response? And that's what we hope to argue for today, is that the response that comes out of that. Let's look at what Community Bible Chapel says in our statement of faith. 
We say it under our segment, Redemption Applied. We believe that the redemption accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ is effectually applied, effectually applied by the Holy Spirit to all whom God has chosen to save. We believe that it is the Spirit who works faith in us through regeneration and thereby unites us to Christ. And we believe that the Spirit continues to renew us alive according to the image of God. He enables us more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness until at last we are received into glory. This is the sanctification part, right? As we go forward from salvation, we are we're being made more and more like Christ. But the key words here is that the Holy Spirit applies to all whom God has chosen to, suit, to us save. And that He works faith through regeneration. Faith through regeneration. In other words, regeneration, and through regeneration comes faith. Faith comes first. Or regeneration comes first. Excuse me. When we looked at total depravity, we said that man is dead in his ability to respond to and to please God. Okay? Not that man is as evil as he possibly be, but in the sense of being able to please God at his standard, be holy for I am holy, he said. Man is unable to do that. He is dead in his trespasses and sin, Paul says in Ephesians 2. So another way to, to speak of irresistible grace is this. God raises the dead. God raises the dead. So maybe first we look at what are we not saying in irresistible grace. We are not saying men cannot resist God. Okay? Men resist God every day. Right? Saved and unsaved. In fact, the unregenerate resists God all the way to hell. Right? The unregenerate man is active. He is very active in his resistance and his rebellion to God. Okay? We can resist God's will. We are not saying that we are unable to resist his will. Well, let's look at what we are saying. Let's look at some scriptures to say that. All right, in Jeremiah, I've sent you my service, I've sent in the prophets. He calls people to turn away from their evil deeds. Listen, you know, dwell in the land of your fathers. And he says, but you did not incline your ear or listen to me. So obviously, Israelites could resist. They did not incline their ear. They didn't listen. God says, I spread out my hands all day. Come to a rebellious people. So there's the resistance, the rebellion, to walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, Isaiah said that. In Acts, uh, Peter's speaking, uh, excuse me, Stephen is speaking to the, to, the, uh, to the leaders, the Jewish leaders. He says, you stiff-necked uh, stiff people, stubborn, uncircumcised in your hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. What did this little uh, sentence get him? Got him stoned, right? So they gnashed their teeth and took him out and stoned him. Paul speaking to believers in Ephesus, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So we as believers can grieve God's Spirit. We can grieve it. We can resist Him. Paul says to the Thessalonians, do not quench the Spirit. Okay? Do not quench it. So we can quench the Spirit. We have that. Okay? We are not sinless and perfect. We can quench the Spirit. But what we are saying is this. God raises the dead. We're not saying that God's grace 
his will cannot be resisted. What I will argue is that it cannot be it, that it can be resisted until until he decides to overcome it. That's what we're arguing. That's that it can't be resisted. It can be resisted until God wills to overcome it. He is free, right? That was what we want to say. He is free. So the question becomes essentially one of the condition of man's will. Is man spiritually dead? Or is he spiritually sick? Does the grace of God persuade men to believe out of their own will? Or does the grace of God make men alive so that they believe or so that they breathe and believe? Does the grace of God make men alive so that spiritually speaking, they breathe and believe? Okay. I think scripture is clear. Man is spiritually dead and he must be made alive to believe. He's blind and must be given eyes to see. He's deaf and must be given ears to hear. I think the scripture is clear. All right, let's, let's take the story of Lazarus real quick. This is a, a starting place. Small text. But here it is. Jesus said to her, to Mary, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I say this aloud on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. So the many Jews who had come with Mary and had seen what he did believed in them. Lazarus, come out. That's a picture of salvation. Spiritually, we are like Lazarus, right? How was Lazarus here? He was what? He was what? Dead? He was rotting, right? Lord, what we don't see in the verse 4 of this, she said, Lord, don't roll a stone away. He stinks, right? He's bound, right? He's bound. He, he can't get out. So many of the rules, okay? He's dead. He's bound. He's, in, he's incapable, incapable of resuscitation. He's rotting. You can't, there's, there's no CPR going on here, okay? By contrast, Jesus is free with the power over death. Did Jesus ask for Lazarus' permission? No, he did not. A corpse, or corpses, don't have much say about their destiny, right? Lazarus is dead. Now he's alive, okay? That's the story. He was dead. Jesus called him, and he came out alive. So we see that the term irresistible, we will argue that the inability of spiritual dead sinners to resist resurrection to new life. That's what we're saying about, uh, about what it means to be irresistible. That we as dead sinners do not have the ability to resist life when it's given to us, when we're called from our spiritual grave. Okay? Was, dra was Lazarus dragged unwilling from the tomb? No. He didn't say, Lord, I want to stay dead. No. Okay. No, come forth. And Lazarus did what live men do. What do live men do? They live. Okay. It's simple. Ephesians 2.5 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. 
We were not a drowning man in need of a life ring, but we were that man laying dead on the ocean floor who was in need of having life breathed into us. That's the picture we're talking about here. Now I want to look at just an issue here real quick is that God is indeed sovereign over man's affections. He is sovereign over man's affections. Folks, this is, this is a mystery, okay? I see my life, my wife, and I'm joyful, right? And I love her. And I know that God is sovereign over my affections. I come and I remember the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection every week. And I'm joyful. Yeah, I know God is sovereign over my affections, okay? Again, it has to do with I am free, but God is more free, all right? God is sovereign over men's affections. Psalm 105, he turns their hearts to hate his people. This is speaking about Israel's enemies. He turns their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with their servants. See, God, is, God controls the enemies of Israel. He calls them to hate his people. Joshua said this. For is, he's speaking of the people who are in the land of Canaan. Okay? For is the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle? in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay? God hardened the hearts of the people in Canaan so that they would come against Israel for the purpose of God destroying them. Because we see God says they, they are an evil people and I will destroy them, but he used their own emotions and hatred to do that. Here, here here's, here's two, two sides of it. Look, O oh Lord... Why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. This is Isaiah saying, why do, you, why do you make us wander? Why do you make us so that we don't fear you? All right? Then God says this. I will make them an everlasting covenant, but I will not turn away from doing them good. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Why do you make us so that we fear you not? Right? And God says in the New Covenant, I will put the fear of me in their hearts. God is sovereign over our affections. I just want to establish that. Okay? He's, not, he's not a puppeteer pulling strings. But, but, we, but we, we see this freedom of God, and we see, this, we see men acting out of their own hearts, too. Okay? But God's sovereign. All right. And just a comment that there is a, obviously there's a general call to all men, and there's an effectual call. Right? God's the Lord of the world. Right? If you would believe, you will be saved. We see that. Okay? I'm, I'm not just dying. It's not this general call. There's a general call of salvation to all men, yes. But God makes a specific, effective call to his people. Okay? There's a dualism there. Okay, we've talked about some dualisms, right? Will of God, right? Will that none perish, but he also has a will for an effective people. We see that God loves the world, yet he loves his people. Right? God calls all men. But he effectually calls his people. We see it. Uh, we see a, a twofold thing happening throughout Scripture. Okay, we're, we're just going to acknowledge that, 
And I'm going to go on. Now, I'd like to look at four specific arguments from Scripture okay, for irresistible grace. Okay, so let's go back. Here's an example. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. If who, if, if who, if who comes in, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. That's what Jesus said. Okay? If you come in through him, he will be saved. It's a general call. But then we see later on in the same chapter, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So we're his sheep. And because we're his sheep, we hear. And because we hear, they follow. It's a general call. But his sheep hear his voice. Four, or, four arguments for irresistible grace. When we look at there's, there's obviously probably more. There's just four that I want to look at. Faith and repentance are a gift of God. So that new life through the Spirit is referred to as a birth. Third, the new birth is a creative work of the Spirit. And we all see that who can resist God's will is our, is our fourth argument. Faith and repentance are as gift of God from the book of Acts. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. Okay, this is Peter speaking of Jesus. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So, in other words, God exalted him. Why? To give repentance and to forgive sins. Okay? It is a gift. It is a it is given. Repentance is forgiven. Forgiveness of sins is given. Acts 11, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Right? This is when Peter, I believe, was coming back from Cornelius. Right? And he told how the Holy Spirit, because they were disagreeing with him. What are you going to the Gentiles, Peter? And Peter relates the fact that the Holy Spirit came and fell upon the Gentiles and they spoke in tongues and gave evidence of the Spirit. And what's the response of the church? They fell silent and they glorified God. Why? Because they said, just like us, God has granted repentance that leads to life to the Gentiles. So repentance is granted. Acts 13, verse 48. This is uh, Paul. When he's, he's, he says that the Jews have kind of rejected him and Paul says, well, I'm going to... I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And then when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Right? God granted repentance to the Gentiles. We see in the previous text. And we see this other picture of it here. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. So an appointment, right? Just like an appointment to one of the military academies. Right? You can do all the work in the world, so to speak, but in Elton it's called an appointment because a senator or uh, one of the joint chiefs, they bestow upon you an appointment to that academy. It is a gift. It is a gift. They don't have to appoint anybody. This is where 
Paul is in Thyatira. You can see Lydia. She was the seller of purple goods. And she was down, I believe they were down by the river, and where people that worshiped God would come to pray because the city wasn't large enough for a synagogue. And it says, a one who heard us, this is Luke writing, you see, Paul's speaking, Luke is writing, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. All right, she's a worshiper of God. He didn't dispute that. But he then says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. What a beautiful picture, right? She's worshiping God, but the Lord, in his kindness, opened her heart. And she paid attention to what Paul said. She was saved. Faith and gift, or faith and repentance, a gift of God. And when he Let's see here. There we go. This is where... When he came, he wished to cross to Acacia. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. This is Paul. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Grace. Grace is the bestowing, the giving of what is not deserved. Grace. Right? And so their believing had come through grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I think most of us that have been in the church, you know this passage, but for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one would boast. And people will argue about this gift. Well, is this a faith or a grace? No. I'm saying that it, there's some argument we can show why, but from the text, but essentially, it is the, the whole thing, the grace by which you have been saved through faith. This whole thing is a gift of God. For it has been granted to you, for it has been granted to you, bestowed upon you, given you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. So we see here that belief is a gift that's been granted to us. And as a Christian, when we suffer for Christ's sake, and we suffer in general, because God is sovereign over all. When we suffer, that's been granted to us to make us more like Him. This is Paul writing to Timothy. He says this. He's talking about the Lord's servant, the man of God. He's giving him instructions what it should be. Correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to the senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will so again our prayer is that god may grant them repentance okay grant them give them repentance so faith and repentance is a gift of god now second argument new life through the spirit is referred to as a birth Okay, well, why is that an argument for irresistible grace? Tell me, talk to me about a baby. What say does a baby have in the matter? Right? He's birthed. Just, I mean, that's what it means. Is a child comes into the world and is given birth. And that's what our salvation is spoken of in the same way. So if our, sal- if our salvation is a birth, if this new life is a birth, 
and someone had to birth it. Okay, we don't birth ourselves. John says this in his first chapter, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born. Not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So that birth to new life was by the will of God. Not by our own will, not by our physical flesh, okay? but we are born by the will of God and we became children of God. New life through the birth referred to as a birth. And it's also referred to as a birth in a passage that uh, many of us are familiar with in John 3. You know that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus has just asked a question and Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, actually remember, Nicodemus says, well, we know that you are a teacher come from God, right? And what's Jesus' answer? He just cuts to the chase and this is his answer to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus said to him, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and the Spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We don't understand it. But for those of us who are born of the Spirit, it's just like the wind. And the Holy Spirit's that wind that He comes and He blows where He wishes. right? And out of that blowing and out of that wind moving, so to speak, birth comes and it's a spiritual birth. And we are born to new life. Okay, Life through the Spirit is referred to as birth. Again. It's Titus talking about Christ. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration, right? That Holy Spirit coming and washing us, regenerating us, making us new in renewal of the Holy Spirit. Again, we see an acting God, a sovereign God working on his people. It is a sweet thing. Do you think? This is nothing we deserved. This is a kindness that He's done to us and drawing us and showering grace upon us. First John, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been. Not everyone who believes will be born of God. It's if you believe, you have been born of God. That's regeneration. Regeneration comes and faith proceeds from it. Okay? New life through the Spirit is referred to as birth or regeneration precedes faith. God's work and making us new and making us live 
And then we respond and do what live people do. We breathe, take a breath, we live, and we believe spiritually. All right, that's the metaphor. All right, uh, we see next, one more, First Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is now he goes through a whole spiel where he just kind of blows up. And at the end of this chapter, he says this, Since you have, born again, you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. We have been born again through his living and abiding word, his son, Jesus Christ. The new birth is a creative work of the Spirit. Just a little bit different way, same thing, okay? The new birth is a creative work of the Spirit. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, okay? This is where God gives them the law again, okay? They're getting ready to go into the land. God gives them the law. He says, you're not going to be able to do it, okay? He's prophesying. You're not going to be able to keep this law. You're going to fall away from me. And then he says, but... When you break this covenant, you fall away. Here's what I'm going to do. Okay, he's speaking the new covenant again. He says this, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, your children, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So, we'll see, so we see that this new covenant, this covenant of salvation, we see that it is a creative work of the Spirit of taking this dead heart and creating within it a new heart, giving us a new heart, creating within us new life. Again, the new birth is a creative work of the Spirit, and that's, the, that's an argument for that grace is irresistible, okay? because it's, it's outside of us. It's not waiting upon us to make a cognitive decision to initiate it. God's doing it. He's taking our emotion, our spirit of heart, and making it new. And then we freely believe. But far be it from me, this is in Galatians, Paul says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. The new creation in us, that's what counts. For we are his workmanship, right? Been saved by grace, 2, 8, and 9. It's a gift. Why? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Created in Christ Jesus. Again, we see the hand of the creator. We see the potter with the clay making a pot. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All is from God, who through Christ reconciled to himself and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. So we see that the new birth was a creative work. And our last argument is it's pretty simple. It goes back to that character and the sovereignty of God. This is in Romans 9. When Paul comes down to it, here, here's what he's saying. He says this. Small text, if you want to turn to Romans 9, verses 14 through 23. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's part? By no means. Okay, because he's just gone through this whole argument that God, that all men has fallen, and God's choosing for Himself out of this fallen people, a people, and they're not all Jews. 
Okay? Is there any injustice in God's part? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will exertion, but on God who has mercy. Okay? He talks about Pharaoh. Okay? He raised Pharaoh up to proclaim his power. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Guys, this is the conundrum. Okay? This is the conundrum. This is the mystery. Why does God still find fault? All right? Well, we've seen that we're, we're doing what we naturally do in our sin. But that's a piece of what we're asking. That just, it, what, what's this question asking? That's not fair. Okay? But Paul says this. God can have mercy on whom He wills. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable? Okay? We are prepared for God's glory. That's the reason we're prepared. And that's, that's the final. We, we, we cannot resist God's will. But what we don't see here is this, you know, what's fair is that God had just left us all in our sin, in our rebellion, and we would have gone into an eternal damnation. Okay, that's, that's fair. Mercy is coming and acting on His own, out of His own, his own character, choosing, drawing, making us alive in Him, for honorable use, for his honor. He's the potter. We're the clay, the pot. And what that should cause us to do is not shake our fists and ask why, but it should cause us to say, oh God, you, you saved me. You didn't have to. That, that, that should be our response. Okay? And we're not going to have that response unless God works in our heart. That, that's the miracle. That's not the natural response because we are... We are people that want our own way. We're going to answer one thing here, okay? How do you answer this issue of? How, how does God, because we can't resist God, right? And He does put conditions. How do we answer this issue of conditions? I've got just one text of Scripture I want to read and, and show you how Scripture answers this issue of, where God says, if you will believe, I will do this. If you repent, I will do this. Okay? That's what we're talking about. We can resist God's will, right? Second Chronicles 30, verses 6 through 12. Israel's turned away, and one of the kings sends out people to call people back to God, and the prophets go out. O people of Israel, what the prophets are saying, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, so that he may turn again to the remnant of you. Okay? For if you return to the Lord, that's conditional, for if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to their land. So the, Israel's scattered. They're in a captive in a land. And God says, if you return to me, I will cause you to find favor and be able to return to the land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his, away his face from you if you return to him. 
So the couriers went from the city through the, through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun. But these Ephraim, Manasseh, and Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. God says, if you turn, I'll return you to the land. But these people laughed and mocked the prophets that came and, and called them. However, some men of Asher and of Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. So some met the condition. They turned and they humbled themselves and returned to Jerusalem so that God would return them to the land, right? But the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. Do you see the hinge? This is what turns the whole thing. God says, if you repent, I'll return you to the land. Right? Some people didn't repent. They laughed and scorned. Other peoples did. And you go, okay, they met the condition out of their own free will. But then God gives them this picture. Here's the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart. To give them one heart. To do what the king and the princess commanded by the word of the Lord. And my argument is, that's the picture of irresistible grace. God calls us to turn to Him. But He does not leave us in our condition. Because His atonement was effective, and it was right, and it was sufficient, and it bought. In His kindness, He sends the Spirit to reach into our heart and to make it new so that we believe. And we just do what dead people do, or alive people do. We live. And if that's irresistible grace, that's what I'm talking about. And we do it out of our freedom, and we do it out of joy. That is the joy of grace. Irresistible grace is amazing grace. That's what I'm talking about. Okay? It's not God grabbing us by a collar and dragging us. No, it's, it's God making us new so that we rejoice and we see the beauty and we believe. Irresistible grace is amazing grace. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for the grace you showered upon us. Lord, we know that we are without you, we are lost in our sin. Lord, we thank you for coming and giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, giving us hearts that respond to you. Now, Lord, I pray that we would be people that are faithful to follow you and to be diligent, to uh, have hearts that go after you and that you would be glorified in our lives. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. So one, one more comment. When we come and talk to people about the gospel, right? It, we don't got to worry about who's elected, who's not elected, guys draw. No, we preach the gospel. And the gospel is this, what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Okay? And the requirement is that we believe and trust Him. That's the gospel. This is the mystery we're talking about and how He's working. And His people should cause us to fall on our knees and be thankful. But we can take the gospel of the world. For whosoever will may come. For whosoever will may believe. That's the gospel. And the requirement for the world, or if you've not believed in Jesus Christ, is belief. Trust in Him for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will be saved. Guaranteed. No ifs, ands, or buts. If you come, you'll be saved. 
We're just looking behind the veil. Thank you.